Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. We began this story with a perfect world created by a perfect God. If you're a guest with us, we're in the middle of a series where we're basically covering the entire storyline of the Scriptures, beginning in Genesis, which we did on January the 8th, finishing up with the book of Revelation, which we plan to do on June the 11th. And that is exactly how that story started, a perfect world created by a perfect God involving two perfect individuals, Adam and Eve. Very quickly, very early in that story, it begins to deteriorate as our first parents decide willfully to rebel against the commands of their creator. And as a result, they are placed outside the garden. They suffer just condemnation for their rebellion. And as a result of that, you and I continue thousands of years later to live in a world that is outside the garden, outside of fellowship with God. A world that is full of increasing rebellion and sin. And a world, as a result, that suffers from famine and war and earthquakes and natural and moral evil, nuclear war, at least the threat of it, horrible dictators and rape and murder and all manner of sinful activity, all manner of things that we have to deal with, disease and such. That is the world that we inhabit now. But very early in that story, we also heard this. God make a promise to our first parents, even as they are being covered, their shame is being covered, their sin is being covered by God himself there in the garden, even as he is placing them outside the garden. He says, I'm going to send a redeemer. This is where it all begins. That promise began all the way back then in Genesis chapter 3. I will put enmity, he says this, to the serpent, to our enemy who tempted our first parents to rebel against him. I will put enmity between you and the woman. That's another way of saying, I am going to initiate warfare between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. It's the first moment in history in which we see a promise of a redeemer that's going to come. God says, I'm not going to leave the world like this. In fact, I'm going to redeem for myself these people back, Adam and Eve and all of and their progeny who believe in me and all of the cosmos will be restored and everything will ultimately be set back in its rightful place. And all of this is going to come through a redeemer, through a Messiah. And for the last 16 weeks, you and I have been involved in looking through the greatest story that has ever been told in all of humanity. A story that is captured in this book that we call the Bible. A story that involves kings and princes and warriors and thieves and witches and donkeys that talk and axe heads that float and global floods and mayhem and carnage and injustice and kings and nations and all kinds of things that God has worked through in human history to fulfill that promise, to make good on that promise. And last week, We saw that that promise was finally made good as that Messiah appeared, as Jesus entered into human history through the womb of a teenage virgin, lived a completely sinless life, opened blinded eyes, raised the dead, made the lame to walk, preached the kingdom and all of its benefits and opened all of that up to us. 
and talking to us about the kingdom of God that is coming. And as we begin this morning, we're transitioning from his life to that climax of his life, the climax of his life that was foretold to our first parents. Today, his heel will be bruised in a horrible crucifixion, and today the serpent's head will be crushed in an overwhelmingly triumphant resurrection. And see, for all of his teaching and all of his miracles, his life example, it is now time for Jesus to do what he ultimately came to do. This is it. Change human history. And to do it by turning time back and restoring all things to himself. And so we begin this part of history with Luke chapter 9, which says that when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Because up until this point, Jesus has spent most of his time in his ministry and his miracles and his teaching about the kingdom way north of Jerusalem, up around a body of water that we today know as Lake Galilee. He's been in, the, in and out of the villages there. He's been teaching the kingdom. He's been performing miracles. He's been recruiting his disciples. But that's not where Messiah is going to appear. The Jews for centuries had expected that their Messiah would be revealed and would make his appearance at Jerusalem. And it's time for that moment, although this will not be the messianic revelation that the Jews expect. And we'll see the very negative consequences of that as we continue to move through this story. But it begins with the last supper. Mark chapter 14 tells us that on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And so that's where all of this begins during the Passover season. And Jesus then gathers with his disciples with all of the elements that they need. And we begin to see the following begin to take place. He says, take, uh, and he says this of the bread, take, this is my body. Later he will say, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. To truly understand the depth of what is happening here, there, there's a story that we've covered earlier that we just need to go back to and remember. It, it's, it's embodied really in this first picture to my right where you see a door there and blood on the doorpost and across the top of the door. Terry painted that very beautifully when we talked about the story of the Israelites coming out of Egypt and God freeing them under the leadership of Moses from the thumb of the tyrannical Pharaoh. And that last plague that happened before they were set free was called the first Passover. God said to them, you will take a lamb, you will kill it at twilight, you will consume all of it, and then you will take the blood and you will put it over the doorpost, and because I am coming down into your midst, into the midst of Egypt, and I'm going to strike dead all of the firstborn of Egypt, but if I see the blood over the doorpost, I will pass over you, because death has already come to that house. This is the penalty for sin. It's death, and the Israelites are just as sinful as their Egyptian captors, and so God provides a way for them to be delivered through the blood of a lamb which was to be eaten entirely. And now here we are centuries later, Jesus, a Jew himself, celebrating the Passover with his disciples, and he takes the meaning of that Passover deeply embodied in centuries of teaching, and he applies it to himself. As the lamb's flesh was eaten, he takes bread, and he graphically tears it in front of his disciples, and he says, this is my body, it's broken for you. Then he takes wine, and as he pours it out, he says, this is the blood of my covenant. And in doing all of this, Jesus is describing a new arrangement, an ultimate Passover lamb whose work will produce eternal deliverance. Paul would tell us later in Romans 6 this truth, that the wages of sin is death, 
This is the inflexible penalty for rebellion against God. It is the penalty for not living up to our potential that God created us to fulfill. It is death, separation from God. But the latter half of that verse says, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In that one verse is embodied all of this meaning that is unpacked for us at the Last Supper. God is about to deliver. God is about to pave a way. He's about to absorb that death penalty himself so that you and I, if we choose, can be free in Christ Jesus. And the next 72 hours after the Last Supper will reveal to us exactly how Jesus is going to do this. But first, we have to go to one other place. He takes his disciples out and into an olive grove called Gethsemane. And it is there that he prays. And he says to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Several verses later, we begin to see this in the mind and the heart of Jesus. He said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. It's helpful for us to remember, as Christians living in the 21st century, that we believe that Jesus is God, and that is right, and that is good, but we too often will forget when we read a narrative like this that he was fully human to exactly the same extent that he was fully God. And we see this in the Gospels, don't we? He gets tired, he gets hungry, he gets thirsty. He also experiences the full range of of emotions that you and I experience every day. He weeps bitterly at the loss of his friend Lazarus there at the graveside. He gets enraged as he cries out in judgment, righteous anger and judgment over the religious leaders who abuse those that they're supposed to be serving. He is also happy. He celebrates at weddings and other feasts. And so you see that happiness and this gregariousness that's also a part of the life of Jesus. But it is here in the Garden of Gethsemane that the grief and the sorrow of human sin and the death that comes as a result of it seems to kind of collapse on him all at once. And for the first time in the life of Jesus, you and I get a look inside of an emotion that he starts to feel that he's never felt before. Fear. Our Lord Jesus, in his humanity, was afraid. You're like, well, what in the world would he have to be afraid of? He's God. His friends have deserted him. There's a posse coming for him. His disciples can't even stay awake. So if you've ever been left alone and felt like nobody cares but me, trust me, there is someone there who knows how you feel. And he faces as a man. Remember, 1 Timothy 2 tells us that our mediator is a man, Christ Jesus. This is the biggest part of the fear. He is about to face the full wrath of God for all of the sins of humanity. Some of you have experienced unspeakable pain in your life and you think to yourself, nobody understands this. Nobody gets this. And for me, that's that's probably true of somebody like me. That's probably true of most, if not all, of the people who are sitting here with you right now. It is not true of Jesus. Jesus understands what you've been going through. And it's not necessarily that he understands because he's been through precisely what you've been through. The issue is he understands because whatever it is that you've gone through, he experienced far worse. No one in this room, no one in the world, no one in the history of humanity has ever experienced the terror that came upon Jesus in this garden and that was manifest in the cross that we're going to see later. Jesus gets it, and it's in Gethsemane that we see this visceral struggle and the moment when Jesus resolutely moves forward to do what he came here to do. We also read in Matthew 26, 42, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, 
your will be done. And with that said, he looks up from his position in the olive grove and he sees the posse coming. The temple guard, led by Judas, who had betrayed him, grabs him, chains him up, takes him to Anas, who at this point is the former high priest, Anas, then has him bound and sends him to the home of Caiaphas, his son-in-law, who is now the acting and official high priest. And Caiaphas presumes to call a kangaroo court in the middle of the night. You can read all about this in John 18. I will simply summarize by telling you this, that by all standards that we read in the Old Testament, this trial did not meet the standard for justice. There's nothing about this trial that was right or just. It was, it was both illegal and its verdict was unjust. They're not even following their own scriptures. They're so obsessed with getting rid of him. But in their minds, the end justifies the means. And so they keep going, soliciting false testimony, finally asking Jesus himself, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? And to which he answers in the affirmative. And the high priest tears his clothes as a sign that blasphemy has been committed. And what follows after this is a night of horrible mockery and abuse and physical assault and being spit on followed by those leaders pressuring the Roman governor at the time, whose name was Pontius Pilate, to collude with them to put this man to death. And the result is that Jesus is ultimately crucified. There's one scene here that I want you to see with clarity. It involves Jesus standing side by side with a known criminal named Barabbas. Matthew 27 tells us this. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. This is the consummate act of a coward. And yet God is working through human history, even through the actions of a coward to bring about his ultimate plan of redemption. And the crowd responded, his blood be on us and our children. This is how desperate they are to get rid of this man. They don't care if it's been done legally. They don't care if the verdict is just. None of that concerns them. They simply need to get this man out of the way because he is not in their minds the Messiah that they're looking for. And so the result is he releases Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, sends him to be crucified. Now, we don't know a lot about Barabbas, except that he had been arrested for having been an insurrectionist against the Roman government. Most likely, he was a, a leader of a very violent Jewish militant group that sought to overthrow Rome. We know on the basis of that that he was a murderer and a criminal. And we know because of the testimony that we just read in Matthew's account that the crowd was willing to exchange Jesus for someone like him. It's a horrible, unjust situation, but there is great beauty in it because here's what we need to see. Pilate in this story, whether he realizes it or not, provided a perfect picture of what Jesus did, not just for Barabbas, but for every man, woman, boy, and girl on the planet. And in this great exchange, he takes many things on himself that were the responsibility of Barabbas. 
when you see Barabbas coming down a free man, the guilty going free, while the innocent remains chained up and headed toward his death, you don't need to look at that and go, wow, that's ugly, that's unjust. Our first response should be to see our own reflection. Because when we see Barabbas, we should see ourselves. When we see the exchange between this criminal and the innocent, we should see the greater exchange in eternity between Christ who was innocent, Christ who did no wrong, Christ who never sinned, and you and I who deserve the wrath of God being set free because he takes our place. And in taking the place of Barabbas, he took on three things that Barabbas should have rightfully suffered. Number one, mockery. The soldiers grab a robe a purple robe, and they put it on him, and they begin to mock worship of him and make fun of him while they spit on him and yank his beard out and call him a king. And ultimately, they will fashion a very odd sort of crown made from two-inch thorns that they will press down, and it will press through the skin and literally touch the skull, bringing him great pain. And they will get him up, and they will parade him around and mock him incessantly. And then in addition to the mockery, there's shame. Shame. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. Jesus suffered shame. Victims of crucifixion were often required to wear a placard around their neck. Written on that placard was the crime that they were considered to be guilty of. And so you need to think about that in a Roman society you're hanging literally naked barely recognizable which may be the only relief you have as you're hanging naked there in front of the crowd nailed to a cross the placard around you with the crime that you have committed written across it and people would walk by and they would look at that and this is the way that the empire instilled fear of breaking the law into the lives of their citizenry because some things in the Roman mind were worthy of this kind of horrible death And if you don't want this to be your end, don't commit the crime hanging around the guy's neck. There's something bigger in that that you and I need to see. All of us were born in this life with a big placard around our neck. All of us were born into this life and continued. And once we were volitionally able, began to willfully choose a life of sin and rebellion against our Creator. And that placard, if you don't know Christ, continues to hang around your neck. And it will continue to be there. And the penalty for that is death and separation from God and it's either going to be required of your hands or it's going to be absorbed in the death and the resurrection of Jesus one or the other but the shame that comes with that is what Jesus suffers he's then led through the streets forced to carry his own cross on which he will now spend the remaining hours of his life a cross large enough to to hold up a grown man would have weighed about 200 pounds and Jesus has already been beaten unrecognizable and he has to, weak as he, as he is, he has to carry that. He's in agony. He's exhausted. Now he has to be put to shame. And then as he's nailed to the cross, he experiences something else in its greatest degree. And that's pain. Frederick Verrar tells us in a book that he wrote some time ago, he describes this from a medical standpoint. He says the unnatural position made every movement painful. If you've ever been, maybe you had a case of the shingles or some microcosm of what Jesus experienced where nothing, doesn't matter what position you get in, you simply can't find comfort. The lacerated veins and crushed tendons throb with incessant anguish. The wounds inflamed by exposure gradually gangrened 
The arteries, especially at the head and the stomach, became swollen and oppressed with surcharged blood. And while each variety of misery went on gradually increasing, there was added to them the intolerable pain of burning and raging thirst. And all of these physical complications caused an internal excitement and anxiety which made the prospect of death itself, of death, the awful unknown enemy at whose approach man usually shudders most, bear the aspect of a delicious and exquisite release. This is the indescribable physical pain that Jesus suffered on the cross, but that's not the worst. Jesus didn't just suffer mockery and shame and pain. The worst possible experience, the greatest agony comes in the wrath. Look at what we read. Matthew 7, 27, 46, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is a direct quote from the 22nd Psalm. Oftentimes when you're 2,000 years removed from a narrative, you, you forget how deeply ingrained a certain saying is in earlier things that happened in history. And as a result, we tend to truncate what we think this means in our own day. Jesus bearing the wrath of God, which is absolutely true. But somehow we, we shorten and we stunt the meaning of this. Just go home. We don't have the time to cover it today. Go home this afternoon. Read the 22nd Psalm because all of those people gathered at the foot of the cross weeping over his death, including his own mother who grew up a young Jewish girl and in all likelihood had the 22nd Psalm memorized. She can fill out the rest of it when she hears her son cry out the first verses of it in agony on the cross. And what it gives us a sense of is the wrath that is being poured out and the punishment. Jesus dies as a substitute for others, bearing the sins of the world, which means every act of rebellion against God from the time of our first parents until the end of time. Every person who would ever believe to Jesus, God imputed or he transferred their sins to him. And with it, the punishment that was due it. And on the cross, Jesus suffered the outpouring of the wrath of God against every sinner who has ever lived in all of human history. He absorbed all of it in one act. And having done that, he will cry out in victory, it is finished. And consummate this experience with the simple prayer, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. What we need to learn from this part of the story is that Jesus died as no other man had ever died in history or would ever die again. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is he yielded his life willingly. Back in John chapter 10, he said this to his disciples, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. And if I have the power to lay it down, I have the power to take it up again. That was Jesus' way of saying, I decide when I'm going to die. I decide how I'm going to die. I decide the circumstances of my death. I decide when I'm coming back, and then I'm going to come back. All of this is under my complete control. It may look like I'm suffering immeasurably. It may look like I have been defeated. I am in control. I rule. I reign. They may mock me when they hang King of the Jews above my cross, but it's true. And I reign over them, even from the cross. Sometimes we get this picture of Jesus being made a weakling and that this was some sort of way of making him emaciated and weak and, 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 and placid and that, that somehow just, he's, he's losing all of his energy. He's defeated as he, as he 
lives on the cross. And this causes all kinds of confusion, even among Christians, with ideas like substitutionary atonement, the fact that Christ died in your place for your sins. And there are people, because they have that view of what happened to Jesus on the cross, that they just can't accept it. They can't accept it. More liberal scholars have described it as divine child abuse. That God, There's no way that part of the story is true because God must be some kind of egomaniacal, horrible being if he would do something like that to his son. William Paul Young, the author of The Shack, in a very recent book that he wrote where he kind of unfolds his own theology that lies behind the book. He said, by his own confession, I could never believe in or worship a God who would, and I quote, beat the hell out of his own son. I could never believe in that. And the problem is we're looking at this wrong if that's the way you're looking at it. When we cry divine child abuse, we see Jesus on the cross in much the same way that we might see little children in our house. If that's the view, then, then I agree with you. That's not who God is. God would not do that any more than I would take my 11-year-old son, Seth, with all the body mass and the strength that I've got on that little kid that, little kid that I love so much. I can't imagine pounding him and pounding him and abusing him for hours and hours and hours until he finally dies. I mean, that, that is horrible. That would make me a monster to do something like that. I can't conceive of ever doing that. And that is not what happened on the cross. If you want a better analogy of what happened on the cross, maybe the better thing to do is to move your gaze from my 11-year-old and take it to my 17-year-old. And give him a couple more years till he's an adult. And imagine that he comes to me and he says, Dad, we're together on the mission of God. And I'm going to a hard place to share the gospel. And I might get my head cut off for it. Imagine my son coming to me and saying, Dad, you taught me to serve all people, including my country, well. There's danger there are people that are oppressed on the other side of the world. I've enlisted. I'm going to go. I'm going to fight. I might die. And I say to him, with tears, because that'd be the only way I could say it, I'm proud of you. Go do it. And God forbid a few months later, we're burying him. Is there heartache? Yeah. Sorrow? Unbelievable unspeakable pain indescribable is there also a sense of solemn pride when you're holding that folded American flag you better believe it what happened on the cross was not God beating up a kid what happened on the cross was the greatest display of Trinitarian unity we have seen in all of history. What happened on the cross was God the Father and God the Son, the first person of the Trinity and the second person of the Trinity agreed together. Humanity doesn't deserve it, but we will redeem them together. And the Son said to the Father, Dad, I'll go get them. And the Father said, go. That's what happened. That's what happened. And he paid that penalty he suffered the wrath of God because those two had agreed that that's how it's going to be. This is the trial and the crucifixion. And it is followed three days later by a bodily resurrection 
that vindicates everything else. Women come to the tomb, and they find it empty, and they find a messenger there with a very simple question in Luke 24. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Jesus, not long after that, finds those same women, and he says to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And then we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, this is Paul's account of the resurrection and what it means. He says, for as in Adam all die. In other words, our first parents rebelled against God. They fell in the garden. You and I have grown up in a fallen world with fallen hearts as a result. But as in Adam that happened to us, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. And from the mouth of Jesus himself, he says in John 14, 19, because I live, you will live also. You will live also. He didn't just absorb the death we should have died. He then conquered that death forever when he rose from the dead. Now the big question is, what's all this mean? Why does it matter? Why does the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus matter? And I want to share three things with you in conclusion. Number one, it matters because Christ in his death and resurrection is our example. This is what Paul says in Philippians 2 when he says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Paul will later go on in that passage and say that he became obedient even unto death. Christ in his death and resurrection as well as his life set an example for us as to how we should live, even in moments of hardship and suffering. Caleb is this really young Christian guy, newly married to a bubbly, vivacious, godly young woman named Lexi. Two years into their marriage, about four years after Caleb becomes a follower of Jesus, Lexi is diagnosed with an inoperable stage four brain tumor. And all of a sudden, not only has Lexi's life changed permanently, but so has Caleb's. And he wonders, what in the world do I do? His non-Christian friends from his former life, his college buddies, they tell him, you know, you, you don't have to suffer all this. There's no need for it. You've got a good job. You're making good money. Take care of her. Make sure her medical needs are met. But you don't need to suffer with her through all of that. You don't need to do all of that. Just leave her there in the home and make sure she's taken care of and go find yourself another partner. Because after all, it's about your fulfillment and the heart wants what the heart wants. And you should just, you should just live your life. What's this guy named Caleb supposed to do? Take care of her, but that doesn't mean you have to stay with her. Here's the problem with that. Caleb is a new man in Christ Jesus. The same Christ Jesus who set an ultimate example of self-sacrifice when he emptied and gave all of himself on the cross. And Caleb realizes that when he is in pain, he doesn't have to compromise and walk out on this woman. When he is in pain, he can press forward in victory just like Jesus who set the example for him and he knows there is great unspeakable joy even in that suffering knowing that he will bless his wife by staying by her side knowing that through their relationship in facing hardship together others will see the kind of life that Jesus can create because he lived it first for us on our behalf Jesus Christ is our example secondly Christ is our substitute Isaiah prophesied this in the 53rd chapter of his prophecy when he said, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 puts it this way, for our sake, 
He made him to be sin who knew no sin. You get that? Christ was innocent. Christ never sinned. He was the only perfect human being. He was the second Adam who lived as the first Adam was expected to live. And he knew no sin, but he was made to be sin. Why? So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Read that in reverse and you understand what it takes to follow Jesus. You and I can become the righteousness of God, but the only way we do it is through him who knew no sin, who became sin for us. He is our substitute. And I'm just going to speak bluntly here, guys. Without substitutionary atonement, Christianity doesn't exist. There is no gospel without this. It's not pleasant. It's bloody. It's ugly. But there is no Christian faith without a bloody substitute. We know this because the Bible tells us over and over and over. The penalty for sin is death. The absolutely inflexible penalty. Because we serve a God who is perfectly holy and perfectly just and will ultimately balance out the scales, all of them, one day. We don't serve a God who sweeps stuff under the rug just because our good deeds happen to outweigh our bad ones. That's not how it works. We serve a God of inflexible, infinite justice. But here's the good news. It is that very principle that allows us to live powerfully and in a way that makes people scratch their heads. Bill was in his 30s when he found out that his father, who was in his 60s, had finally become a follower of Jesus. And he thought to himself, there's no way this is real. You ever felt that? You can be honest. Like about a friend, a loved one, a co-worker, you hear that something's happened, they've come to faith in Christ, and you're like, man, I hope it took. You know, you ever had somebody like that in your life? That was Bill's dad. And, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, Bill had good reason to think that way. Because Bill had grown up in the home of an alcoholic and an abuser. Bill has horrible memories of growing up as a four or five or six-year-old boy, hiding under the kitchen sink, opening up the door just enough, not enough so that he could be seen because he doesn't want to be caught and beat up himself, but enough so that he can see his mother being dragged by his dad who has her by the hair, dragging her across the kitchen floor and beating her mercilessly. That's the kind of home Bill grew up in. And after multiple months of watching, he thinks to himself, it took. My dad is a new man. Since then, he'd been estranged from mom. He went to her almost on his knees, begging her forgiveness, not expecting her to get back into the house with him or anything like that, just wanting her to know how profoundly sorry he is. This is a changed man. Jesus has done profound work in his life. But Bill still struggles. I mean, and you would too. This is tough stuff. How do, you, how do you forgive a man who treated you like that? How do you just let that go? You can't just pretend that never happened. How do you do this? How do you do this? It's at that point that you start thinking like Bill. You're like, you know, I, I remember he used to abuse my mom all the time. On one time that I tried to intervene, I was nine years old, and, and I, I tried. I reached out, and I tried to save mom. And next thing I know, I'm picking myself up off the floor after I've been knocked unconscious with a concussion. How do I forgive a man like this? How do you do that? And here's the truth, guys. Without the biblical teaching of substitutionary atonement. We're powerless to forgive people for things like that. You know why? 
Because without substitutionary atonement, God can't forgive them either. God won't forgive them. Christ, our substitute, means that Bill can understand that God isn't expecting him to sweep it under the rug or pretend it never happened or to continue enabling dysfunctional behavior. Substitutionary atonement means God balances the books and remains just and holy and gracious. So not only can Bill's dad be forgiven by God, but Bill himself can be forgiven by God. And those two can find in time, this kind of thing won't be, those, those kind of knots won't be undone from the rope overnight. But in time, they can experience forgiveness, reconciliation, the unity that a father and a son ought to have together, ought to have together, all because the penalty has been paid. Christ is our substitute. Without that, there's no miraculous forgiveness in this story. Here's the final thing. Christ is our example. Christ is our substitute. Christ is our victor. Colossians chapter 2 tells us, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. If you looked at her on the surface, this young girl, 22 years old, her name is Katie. She looks like she's got it together pretty well. Like some of you, you look pretty good this morning. You took a shower, you took a bath, well, most of you, at least. You got dressed up. It looks pretty good, but some of you, I don't have any doubt, got some things going on underneath the surface that if other people knew about it, it would just mortify you to know that. Katie is one of those people. She seems to grow up in a pretty stable home. Mom and dad are married to each other, continue to stay married to each other. But underneath the surface, she's been neglected, she's been abused. And she has undergone years and years of demonic oppression. Evil spirits speak to her in her sleep, in her dreams. And they have told her from the time she was old enough to understand that she is not good enough. They have told her that her father neglected her because she was stupid, because she is ugly, because she is not worthy of protection. And then not long after she was sexually assaulted at the age of six, she begins to add horrible nightmares to that demonic oppression. And she suffered that well into her teen years to the extent that before she was one year past entering into puberty, she'd already become sexually active, exchanging herself, giving herself to other men, other young men, hoping that she might find in them the approval that she once sought in her father. And she can't find it. And so there's this endless cycle of abuse and sin and all kinds of other things that are taking place in her life. When she was 20 years old, she came to truly know Jesus. And as does happen when you genuinely encounter Jesus, the party girl disappeared and a new woman emerged who was changed by the power of God. But the torment continued. She's confused. She still, she still suffers from depression from gender identity disorder, dysphoria, from multiple personality disorder, deep down, she's not even sure who she is. And she is crying out for help. We serve a God who entered human history, who gave his life, who triumphed over death, and all of that for Katie means that Katie, even in the midst of all of these things, she is known and she is loved and she is safe and she is free in Christ. All of that happens in Christ. She has all of these things because she gave her life, not just to some emaciated person who gets beat up on a cross, but to a victorious warrior king 
who triumphed over death, hell, and the grave, and who one day is coming back to consummate that victory. The demons, as a result, they can continue to scream at her. They can continue to threaten and lie and seek to intimidate, but that is all they can do because by the blood of Jesus, they have been disarmed. That is the hope that we have in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We have that. We don't have that hope without it. We don't have that hope without it. But we have it. So it's not over there. One day in the future, which we're going to cover in just a couple of weeks when we get to Revelation, Jesus will finally take the serpent, our enemy Satan, chain him and force him to walk naked and bloodied and bowed into his own kingdom. He will be thrown into a bottomless pit and following behind him, first in line, will be young ladies like Katie. I'll be somewhere in that line as well. And if you believe in Jesus, so will you because we will be victors with him and because of him. Guys, when we talk about the death and the resurrection of Jesus, this moment which transpired in history 2,000 years ago changed all of the rest of human history. Don't think for a minute that, can, that it cannot also change your history. Whatever your trajectory has been up until this moment, you confess your sins, you put your faith in Christ, and he hasn't just changed history, he will change the trajectory of your life, and it can happen right here and right now. Would you pray with me? Father, this just, there aren't enough words. There, there really isn't enough anything to describe adequately what this moment in the story means. I feel impotent to describe the majesty of this moment, the significance of it. But Father, as you promise us in Romans 8, with regard to our prayers, that when we have groanings that are not understood, that somehow your Holy Spirit can take that. And by the time it reaches your throne, it is a poetic petition. It says exactly what we should have said and what it needs to say for you to know and for you to act. And so, Father, I, I pray that takes place right now with regard to the preaching of your word. I pray that your people who are here, and in particular for any who may not be your people, that your spirit would speak to them, would convict them of sin, would draw them to Christ. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you're wondering, what's, what's this all about? The larger, grander story of the Bible is that you are created in God's image and likeness and thus you are worthy of dignity and respect and honor. It doesn't matter who you are, what color you are, where you come from, how much money's in your wallet, none of that matters. The essence of your existence makes you of infinite value because you bear the bark of the image of God himself. That's why we put our arms around you when you come in here, no matter who you are, no matter where, where you come from, no matter what you're suffering from. Nothing prevents us from loving you because nothing prevents God from loving you. Here's the other thing. You were born into a fallen world with a fallen heart that is in rebellion against your creator and you are separated from him. And this story that we just described that transpired in human history, this is the story that can change that trajectory for you. Because when you believe in Christ, when you put your faith in him, his perfection is given to you. Your sins are given to him in a great exchange that saves your soul and sets you on a different path for the rest of your life. And so if that's something you want, 
Just pray to him right now. Say something like this. Say, Lord, I, I know that I am separated from you. I know that Jesus came and that he died and that he rose again. I believe that. And I want to embrace that. And so, Lord, I give you my life, all of it. Would you change me? Would you make me into the person I'm supposed to be? And the Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do that right now. And if that's something you want to make public, I'm going to turn my mic off in just a bit. You can, you can come talk to me. You can write it on the back of your Connect card and fold it in half. If you fold it in half, nobody's going to see it but the pastors. At the back of the room here, there's a welcome room through the back doors and to the right. There'll be somebody there who can respond more personally to you. But it is time for you to respond and make that decision known. We would love to celebrate that decision with you. If you're here and you're a follower of Christ, but your life is not what you pictured it to be, would you reaffirm your faith this morning of Christ as your example to help you make it through and to do the right thing and make the right choices? Christ as your substitute and the substitute of those who may have offended you so that you can forgive, not in a way that enables, but in a way that sets you free so that you can claim victory because Christ is also your victor. Whatever God it may be calling you to do, now is the time to respond to his word. Father, one last time I ask your spirit to be with us, to convict of sin, and to draw people to the truth. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.